0: This is tape number three in our six tape series going through the book of Galatians, verse by verse. This tape corresponds to our Life for Today tape number 104. And on this tape, I cover all of chapter three. That's verses 1 through 29. A real quick summary once again Galatians is a book where Paul is really defending the grace of the Lord as the means. To relationship with him, and in contrast to some of his other books like Galatians or excuse me Romans, which was uh, certainly a masterpiece and a defense of the same subject, Romans was kind of a scholarly approach answering questions. Galatians is nearly um, angry in comparison. Paul is making strong statements. He started in the first chapter saying, if anybody says anything contrary to what he says, let him be accursed. Even an angel of God, let him be accursed. In the second chapter, he brings up Peter and makes kind of a personal assault on Peter. I'm sure it was not intended to be vindictive or harmful in any way, but he's just making the point that it doesn't matter who they are. Peter, the head of the, Gentile, or the Jerusalem Jewish uh, church, uh, if he says anything wrong, he was one that was wrong, not Paul. Paul is defending what he's doing here uh, in a very strong way. He ended up the second chapter by saying, I do not frustrate the grace of God, for if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. I mean, he just took this out of the realm that anybody could ever think that this is just a matter of interpretation or an opinion, and he just basically said that if, um, if you are justified by the works of the law, which is what he was teaching against, it's what the Galatians had fallen into believing, they were embracing that. He says, if you believe this, then Christ is dead in vain. And, of course, I mean, it took them totally out of the realm of Christianity. They couldn't even call themselves Christians. They couldn't be serving God. I mean, he made this a non-negotiable subject. He made it a priority. There are some things that are not worth fighting over. There are other things that are. And apparently Paul saw the difference between being justified by grace are justified by works as being one of those heaven and hell issues that he was not willing to compromise on. 3, verse 1, he says, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? I mean, Paul here had just been so overwhelmed that these Galatians could have embraced something. I mean, it's illogical that here he calls them foolish, I mean the word here in you know that he's using it's just literally talking about them being crazy people. The Jerusalem Bible translated it this way: "Are you people in Galatia mad?" I mean Paul had made no attempt at being polite in this situation. He is bringing it clear to these people that what you're doing is totally illogic. Your actions are insane. You know he's saying that at best legalism is stupid and at the very worst it can be considered insane crazy foolish i mean it really defies a logic if a person really understood what legalism is that it's putting the burden of salvation upon our backs it's removing a savior legalism and grace and say well yes you have to have a savior but you also have to be holy but paul had already proven this many times like one of them that to me is very clear is romans chapter 11 verse 6 it says you're either justified by grace without works, otherwise grace is no more grace, or you're justified by works without grace, otherwise works is no more works. He's just saying you have to be justified by one or the other, but not a combination of the two. Paul had already made that point, and so if a person understands that you have to be saved by one or the other, there can be no mixing of the two, then to go back into a system where it puts us under the burden of, of producing our own salvation, it's insane. Now, you might be able to excuse it if a person had never heard the gospel. But once they've heard the gospel and to go back unto something like that, it's stupid, it's crazy. And that's the point that Paul is making. He even goes on to say here in this first verse, he says, Who hath bewitched you? This is talking about that there has to be some demonic deception involved in this situation. In other words, nobody in the natural, having once understood salvation by grace, just receiving as a gift the freedom, the liberty, the peace that that brings, nobody who understood that could ever go back to a system of legalism without some demonic help. I mean, you had to be deceived to do something like this. Now, this is Paul, I mean, being very harsh with these people, calling them stupid, insane, foolish saying that they were bewitched, which means that there was demonic deception involved. Some people might question whether this is the right approach, but I believe that it is. Now, this isn't the approach that Paul took in the book of Romans. It's not the approach that the writer of the book of Hebrews took or Paul took in the book of Ephesians. There are times that he was more diplomatic, but there are times that we need some tough love. And I tell you, I believe that we shouldn't go looking for confrontation, but at the same time, it shouldn't always be avoided at any cost. There is a time that you fight over certain issues. Certain issues are heaven and hell issues, and Paul considered justification by grace one of those issues. Paul, in the latter part of this verse, says that they had, uh, had Jesus Christ evidently set forth, crucified among them. And I believe what he was referring to is that the presentation of Paul of the gospel to these Galatians was so clear that it was just like Jesus died right in front of them. They understood the complete uh, impact of that, the importance of it, what it meant. And because of this, Paul is saying, how could you ever doubt once you understood what complete sacrifice What a huge sacrifice Jesus made. I believe that the point that he's getting across is that a person who truly understands the message of the cross, not just from a historical standpoint, but understanding that God literally came and died for us. He didn't make provision for us in principle. He didn't pay a part of the atonement. The cross is showing that Jesus paid it all. He died and bore our sins. He literally took our sins into his own body on the tree is what it says in 1 Peter 2.24. If a person truly gets an understanding of the cross, that Jesus paid this huge price for us, it should lead directly into relating to God on the basis of grace. I mean, what could we add? What penance could we do? What could we possibly add to the atonement that Jesus has already made for us? A person who is preaching that, boy, your hair has to be a certain length. You've got to wear makeup or no makeup. You can't wear jewelry. And a person who is preaching things like that, those are so trivial. Those are so minute compared to what Jesus has already done for us that a person who is caught up into legalism has missed the message of the cross. They have not understood that Jesus paid it all because he had to pay it all. We couldn't pay our own debt. Your own measure of holiness, you living up to some standard of religious conduct, could never compensate for your sins and make you accepted with God. And so this is what Paul is saying. He says, how could this happen to somebody that understood the message of the cross You knew that the reason Jesus came and died and did what he did was because you were completely impotent. You were incapable of saving yourself. That's the reason Jesus did what he did. How could you ever go back to legalism? I tell you, in my way of thinking, out of my understanding of the Scriptures, this is probably the most exasperated Paul has ever manifested in any of his writings. He's probably the most angry, it's the most forceful, And uh, that's not to say it's wrong in any way. I believe it's needed. We need to get some of these same attitudes with people today because I tell you, a lot of the religious teachings and the concepts that people have today are avoiding the atonement of Jesus. Paul even went on in this same book in the fifth chapter and started talking about that, that. If you are trying to be justified by your works, then Christ has become of none effect unto you. You are fallen from grace. Strong, strong statements. So this is what Paul is talking about here in this first verse. He's just he's just uh, showing the complete foolishness, the demonic deception, the fact that they have missed or forsaken the message of the cross if they go back into legalism. Legalism is not something that can be tolerated. It is against everything that Jesus stood for. And that's the point that he's making. In verse 2, he says, This only what I learn of you. Basically, the way we'd say this today is, uh, Tell me this, or let me ask you one question. In other words, all Paul is saying, Let me me ask you this question. Those of you who want to be justified by the law. He says in verse 2, This only what I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? And, of course, the answer to this is very obvious. He answers it in the next verse, They received the uh, Spirit through faith. They didn't do it through some um, amount of holiness. When Paul came preaching the gospel, he was preaching grace unto them, and they just simply believed, were born again, received the Holy Spirit into their life. So he's going back and he says, how did you get started in this whole thing? Was it started because of your great holiness? How much had you been fasting and praying? You know, I use this same logic often on people. I tell people, you know, who are struggling and saying, well, I know that God can heal, but I just don't believe he'll heal me because I'm, I don't read the Bible as much as I should. I don't pray the way that I should. I'm not everything that I should be, and I know that God heals, but I'm just not worthy of it. Well, I come back to those same people, and I tell them, let me ask you how worthy you were when you got born again. How much had you been studying the Bible before you got born again? How much had you prayed before you got born again? How much tithes were you giving before you got born again? And, of course, the answer to this would be none. But most people weren't religious at all. And I mean, yet they received the greatest gift that God could ever give, which is salvation. They received it totally as a gift. They didn't receive it based on any performance that they had. And yet... Here they come into a situation that now that they've been saved for years, they believe that God is liable to let them die of cancer and let their family fall apart and not answer their prayers, not meet their needs, etc., because maybe they just didn't read two verses in the morning. That's inconsistent. See, there's a scripture over in uh, Colossians chapter 2, in verse 6. It says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. That means the same way that you receive salvation is the same way you should continue to walk in salvation. All of us would have to admit, if you were truly born again, you got born again by grace and putting faith in God's grace, not by something great and holy that you did. And I believe that everybody would have to agree with that. And yet, we divert, we, uh, divert from that, or we digress from that's the word i was trying to think of and after we're born again a period of time we think that now god won't move in our life if we aren't worthy of it if we haven't done enough if we haven't deserved it and see that's completely contrary to this scripture in colossians 2 6 we receive the spirit by grace through faith not through some works or superior effort on our own and he's just saying that that's the same way that we should continue to walk You know, if you ministered salvation to the average person, if a drunk walked into your church service, most Christians would minister salvation to a drunk on the basis of grace. You'd tell him that, hey, it doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter how bad your life is, God loves you, God can intervene in your life, God wants to change you. And if he brought up some unworthiness on his own part, you'd say it doesn't matter, you've got a Savior, you can just receive it as a gift. But let that drunk pray with you and get born again, and and God forbid that he ever come back to church drunk after he's been saved. And many of the same people who ministered grace to him when he was lost would come up to him as a saved person and say, Brother, if you get drunk like this, the wrath of God's on you. God won't bless you. God won't answer your prayers. God won't do anything for you. And they'd minister total legalism to him. And there's a lot of people that think, well, that's the way it is. And yet again, this scripture, Colossians 2, 6, says, "...as you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him." That means that if you receive Jesus by grace, you need to continue to relate to him on grace, on the basis of grace. And that's what Paul is saying here in Galatians. He said, how did you receive the Spirit? By the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Well, the obvious answer is it was faith. In verse 3, he says, are you so foolish? Here he is using this terminology again, He's not being polite with these people at all. He says, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Basically, he's just saying, he says, you know, can you see the illogical uh, thoughts here? Can you see that this is insane, what you're doing? You started off in the Spirit. You started off by grace. You received everything as a gift. Now you're having to work to earn it. Can you tell that you've changed Can you tell that this is not the same message that I brought to you? I tell you, that question is valid today. There are so many people that sing this song, Just as I am, without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me, O Lamb of God, I come. And we sing that uh, at invitations for people getting born again. But don't ever sing that to a Christian. Man, don't tell the Christian, well, just as you are, regardless of how you've lived this week, regardless whether you've done everything just right or not, come and just receive it by the grace of God. Boy, most Christians would balk at that. Most Christians would be very upset and say, no, God forbid, that should never be so. And yet this is exactly what Paul is saying is. He says, you're foolish if you think that you start in the Spirit and now you're made perfect by the flesh. This term, being made perfect by the flesh, the NIV translated that To attain your goal by human effort. In other words, what he's saying is when you got born again, you didn't do anything to produce this. It was all done by God. Jesus paid it all and he offered it to you as a gift. And now you're saying that it's not enough what Jesus did. You also have to, by your human effort, through your acts of holiness, earn something from God. And he's saying that's totally, totally wrong. Boy, I tell you, this needs to be shouted from the housetops today. This is happening in our churches in the 20th century. It is happening today big time. People are missing this. They are trying to produce their relationship with God. They bear the burden of that upon their own backs instead of receiving it by grace. That's the reason for disappointment. It's the reason for not having peace. Not having love is because we're trying to ...earn something that has already been offered as a gift. God is not going to respond to your holiness and to your goodness. You're going to have to receive it by a gift or just do without. And most Christians are doing without. Now, I'm not saying that you aren't born again. See, this is what Paul raises in the next verse. He says, "...have you suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain?" In other words, he's talking about the persecution that they suffered for believing the gospel, for coming out of their pagan cults, for even those who came out of Judaism and believed the gospel and they suffered persecution. He says, you've suffered a lot. And he says, is it all to no avail? Are you going back into this legalistic system? Did you know that legalism will not offend people? But grace always offends people. You know, even other cultures... If you went to preaching just the holiness standards of Christianity and if you took Christ and believing in him as your only means of salvation, if you took that out of the message of Christianity and just preached the standard of morality that Christianity embraces, did you know you could match with other religions? They would be accepted. Matter of fact, there are entire religious movements that try and incorporate Christianity in with Buddhism, Hinduism and all of these other kind of things, but they have to exclude Jesus as being the only way to God. They just include, you know, some of the commands and some of the uh, principles that Jesus taught. Because, see, if you just make Christianity legalism, if you just preach system of do's and don'ts, well, then there's no offense in that. There's really no difference between that and any other religion. But, boy, when you go to preaching grace... When you go to preaching that it's only Jesus and your faith in him that makes you accepted and that offers any hope of ever getting any prayer answered is based on what Jesus has done. And if you preach that and say that your performance does not dictate God's response, he does not move in your life proportional to your performance, I guarantee you're going to upset people. And so this is what Paul's talking about. He says, you suffered all of these things because of grace. He says, is it all in vain now? Have you thrown it away? if it be yet in vain? Personally, I believe that here he's referring to, are the, have they rejected their salvation? I don't believe that Paul thought they had. That's the reason he was writing to them. And being so strong with them is because he still believed that there was hope. But he was being this strong because they were very close to this point of renouncing their faith in Christ and just making a religious system out of Christianity instead of a personal relationship and a dependence upon Christ. And so Paul was being very straightforward here. He was saying, man, you're close to the edge. Is it all in vain? Have you passed over that point? Have you gone back into renouncing your faith in Christ? Are you going to base your relationship with God on your own works? In verse 5, he says, He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith? There are some people that have thought that Paul here is talking about himself. Of course, when he came and preached the gospel, he certainly did work miracles among them, and uh, they make a big debate over this. I really don't think it matters. It wouldn't matter if Paul's talking about himself or anybody else. The point that he's making is that any person who is preaching the gospel with power, signs and wonders following, how does this happen? Well, the obvious answer is that it doesn't happen through their own holiness. God has never had anyone qualified working for him yet. And anyone who claims to be used of God because of their great holiness is either deceived or they're trying to deceive people. And I know that some people may be thinking, well, wait a minute, brother, I know some people that they say that it is their holiness. Well, then they're deceived or they're deceiving other people. Those people, if you were to follow them home, I guarantee you there are mistakes in every person's life. And somebody might say, oh, well, yeah, I know that they aren't perfect, but, well, see then, here you go again trying to say, well, you can't be perfect, but you've got to live up to a certain standard and trust Jesus to make up the rest. That's mixing your own works, your own performance, and then letting Jesus simply be the difference between what you should be and what you really are. It's not like that. Jesus either has to be Lord of all or not Lord at all. You have to put your faith in Jesus for salvation, for everything that you're going to receive from God, or you have to put your faith in yourself, but not a combination of the two. That simply is not the way to respond to God. Boy, Paul is making some real radical statements right here. The people that work miracles among you, how do they do it? By the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? In verse 6, he answers his own question. He says, even as Abraham believed God and it was accounted unto him for righteousness. In other words, he's saying that the answer is it's through faith. It's not through holiness. It's not through performance. A person who relates power to holiness directly with no more explanation than that is not telling the truth. Now, there is a relationship between power and holiness, anointing and holiness, etc., God using a person in holiness, There is a relationship, but it's not because God demands that holiness. God moves in a person's life based on faith and his grace, which is unconditional, unmerited, unearned. But a person who is living in sin is going to harden their own heart towards God. Hebrews chapter 3 says that. And so you will find that a person who consistently lives in sin will not manifest the same anointing, will not manifest the same power, will not manifest the same miracles, but why? It is not because God refuses to move in their life if they have a sin or a problem. If that was true, he wouldn't use anybody because all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But you'll find out that even though God's grace is the same, the Bible says that grace is activated through faith. Romans 5, 2, Ephesians 2, 8, etc. And so our faith is hindered. When we get into sin and into immorality and things like this, it says in First Timothy chapter 1, verse 19, you can make your faith shipwrecked if you don't have a good conscience. And so sin will affect you. It will affect your faith. It will affect your ability to take advantage of God's grace and his goodness and his free gift of salvation, etc. But it doesn't change God's heart towards you. It changes your heart towards God. So yes, there is a relationship between holiness and power, miracles, victory, joy, peace, etc. But it's not that God grants victory when we are holy. It's that when we are unholy, we have given place unto Satan. And Satan comes in and steals from us what God is freely wanting to give by grace. So the point is that if a person is saying that the reason I have power is because of my great holiness... Or if he's saying the reason you will have power is because of your great holiness, then he is not preaching the gospel. He is not preaching what Paul preached here. Paul sees making this very clear. He says it was, it's the same way that Abraham received from God. And then he quotes here from Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. Abraham believed in God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. <clears throat> so Paul is saying that it was faith that worked in Abraham's life, and that's the same way with anybody else who comes preaching the gospel and working miracles. In verse 7, he says, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And again, to get the real impact of this radical statement, you've got to remember the Jewish mindset. They believed that it was the physical descendants of Abraham that were the heirs of the promises of God, and they believed in your genealogy as having as much to do with your salvation as your faith in what you believe. And so this was a radical statement for them. Paul was saying that those who are walking in faith are the true children of Abraham. And he goes on in this same chapter to expound on this and uh, talk about how that those who are of the seed, singular, talking about Christ, are the true children of Abraham. And it just gets worse from the Jewish mindset, those who were trusting in their genealogy for their salvation. And so Paul here is making some radical, radical statements that it's through faith that uh, people are actually the true children of God. Now this has a lot of applications I'm not going to get into, but I tell you, a lot of people today put a tremendous amount of emphasis on the Jewish nation. And I do believe that the Jewish nation has a specific place in history and in prophecy. And I believe that a lot of God's dealings are dealing with the Jewish nation. But I tell you what, the body of Christ are the true people of God. And the body of Christ are the ones who I believe that there is more prophecy revolving around them than there is the physical Nation of Israel, that'd get me in trouble with some people. But I believe that that's the point that Paul's making right here. In the same way it was offensive to people then, it's still offensive to people now. In verse eight, it says, "In the Scripture, foreseen that God would justify the heathen through faith." Again, what a radical statement! Justify the heathen? Again, the religious mindset says no. Heathen people can't be justified. It's the holy people that are justified. No, this says that he justifies the heathen. Same point that was made over in Romans chapter 4, verse 5, where it says that he justifies the ungodly. Most people think, oh, no, it's when you're godly, then you're justified with God. No, God justifies the ungodly. He justifies the heathen because those are the only kind that he has to justify. Somebody says, well, I know none of us are perfect, but... And again, we get into that mistake of comparing ourselves and measuring ourselves by ourselves, which isn't wise... All of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and we need to receive salvation as a gift, not as something that we earn, because it's incapable. We are incapable of ever earning salvation through any merit of our own. So this scripture, it says that the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, "...in thee shall all nations be blessed." Now, this is making reference to that in the Old Testament Scripture, uh, the gospel was preached unto Abraham. Now, if you look these passages of Scripture up, like Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, and there's a lot of places where it says that, "...in you shall all nations of the earth be blessed." Some people would have a hard time understanding how the gospel was contained in that. But later in this very chapter, Paul makes out a real point that when God said that I will bless your seed, and in your seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Paul makes a major point out of the difference between saying seeds plural and seed singular. And so it may have been a little bit subtle for some people. Some people may have missed this, but Paul brings it out through the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, that when he said, in your seed shall all nations be blessed, he was talking about through Christ shall all nations be blessed. And the scripture, uh, in kind of a subtle way, but now that we have the revelation of the New Testament, the, the veil has been taken away, it's very clear to see now, but the scripture was preaching before the gospel. It was saying that there would be a Savior, that would be this seed, the seed of Abraham. Not the nation as a whole, not every physical descendant, but the spiritual seed. The one who came walking in faith and was the true descendant of Abraham, that they would have all of the promises made to them and to that person, which is Christ the Messiah. He would obtain salvation for us, and through Christ, even the Gentiles would now be brought into the family of God. Now that is a radical concept. It was there present in the Old Testament. It was just somewhat hidden. It took the revelation of the Holy Ghost to bring it forth. And that's what Paul is bringing out right here. So it is true that the gospel was preached unto Abraham. He didn't necessarily have all of the conditions of it. I don't believe he understood that the Messiah would come and be born as a baby. That he would grow up humbly that he would probably bear our sins and die on a cross. He may not have had the details of all of this, but he knew that somehow through his seed, singular, that God was going to redeem the world and make it not only the God of the Jews, but also the God of the Gentiles. And so that's what this is all referring to. In verse 9 it says, So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. The only way for anyone to ever partake Of Abraham's blessing was by faith. Some people have misinterpreted it, that it just came automatically to physical descendants, but you can show through Scripture that that wasn't true. You can show that the physical descendants of Abraham had terrible things happen to them because they got out of faith, and they got in to trusting in their own goodness and renounced their faith and their covenant in God. It's only by faith that anybody has ever partaken ...of the covenant of Abraham, and it's only through faith in the Lord Jesus that we partake of it now. In verse 10, Paul brings out a tremendous truth, which it, those who preach legalism and works... ...as the means of relationship with God always fail to mention this point. He says in verse 10, "...for as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, ...Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them." In other words, he says, those who are under the law, those who are trying to relate to God based on their own performance, if you think that you have to be worthy to receive from God, then you are under the curse of the Old Testament law. Somebody might say, well, what's the curse of the Old Testament law? Well, he quotes it here. He goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 27 and verse 26 and The background of this scripture is that he divided the Jewish nation into two parts. He had part of the nation stand on one mountain and part of the nation stand on another mountain. And he had the people pronounce a blessing from one mountain and a curse from the other mountain. The names of these two mountains were Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. You can see this in Deuteronomy 27, verses 12 and 13. The tribes that stood on Mount Gerizim blessed the people if they would keep all of the precepts of the law. The tribes that stood upon Mount Ebal cursed the people if they didn't continue in them. And so you'll read this here in the 27th chapter, and then the last verse of that chapter says, "'Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them.'" See, the real problem with legalism and trying to earn your way to God is that even though you may do certain things and you may improve You can never do everything. You'll never be perfect. And yet the law says you have to be perfect. It says, Cursed is the one that confirms not all the words of this law. And nobody can do everything perfectly. The very next verse, Deuteronomy chapter 27, I mean chapter 28 and verse 1 says, And it shall come to pass, if you hearken diligently to observe to do all the words which I command thee this day. Notice that it says all. And then some people preach Deuteronomy 28 and says, Boy, if you'll just do the word of God, then these blessings will come upon you. Nobody can ever fulfill Deuteronomy 28.1. You have to do everything, all. That little tiny word, A-L-L, is very important. And the truth is, see, because none of us could do everything, that instead of inheriting the blessing, we actually deserve the curse. It doesn't matter if you're good doesn't matter if you're holy. You aren't as holy as God is. You've fallen short of his standard. And the only way you're going to ever receive from God is on the basis of grace. You're going to have to receive it as a gift. You cannot earn it through your goodness. And so this is a point that Paul is making. He says, those of you that are under the law, don't you understand that you're under the curse? Because it says, and then he quotes that Deuteronomy 27, 26 Cursed is every one that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them. So instead of being under a blessing, anybody who is trying to earn their way to God is going to reap the curse. They're going to reap condemnation, guilt, a sense of unworthiness they're never going to measure up. And sad to say, that's what a large percentage of the body of Christ is laboring under today. I mean, what Paul is preaching against right here is just running rampant in the body of Christ. People got born again by putting faith in a Savior. When it comes to their eternal destiny, they don't base it on their own performance. They are trusting 100% in a Savior. But when it comes to -to day-to-day relationship with God, a maintenance of the Christian life, most people feel they have to go to church, they have to pay their tithes, they have to be good, they have to earn it. And because of this, they're under the curse. They're discouraged. They're depressed. They don't have any boldness and confidence in their relationship with the Lord because they're allowing Satan to condemn them over their sin. And that's what Paul is bringing out right here, that if you're living under the law, you're living under a curse. And that is exactly where a large percentage of the body of Christ is today. But then he returns back in verse 11. He says, But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God. It is evident for... The just shall live by faith. That's a quotation from Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4. <clears throat> so, Paul here is making radical statements. I mean, he, as I said, is taking off the gloves. He's being brutally honest with these people. Some of the religious people, I'm sure, were just choking on this and saying, Man, this is blasphemy. How could anybody ever say things like this? And Paul is using scripture. The very thing that they thought he had departed from, he's using Scripture to show that, hey, you're the one that's missed it. It's the legalist. It's the people who are preaching holiness as the basis of relationship with God. They're the ones who are unscriptural. He shows that the law said you had to be perfect. You had to keep all of the law. He even showed in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, that the Scripture prophesied it's the just that live by faith. You can only get there by faith. You can't get there through law. And then he makes a radical statement in verse 12. He says, And the law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. When you put this scripture together with Romans chapter 14 and verse 23, which says that whatsoever is not of faith is sin, then this is just a concept that I guarantee you people either have to bow the knee and say, Man, it's got to be by grace, or they have to reject Paul they have to reject this message of grace. They have to reject this book of Galatians. I mean, this is this is a strong statement. How can anybody get around this? The law is not of faith. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. It is sin for a New Testament believer to try and relate to God on the basis of their own goodness. To try and be worthy, good enough to have God move in their life. That's sin. Now, I am not saying that the law itself is sin. Paul addressed that over in Romans chapter 7. The law itself isn't sin, but it is sin for a New Testament believer to try and relate to God on the basis of law or on the basis of goodness, worthiness. See, the law wasn't intended for the purpose of justification. We've already dealt with that a lot over in the book of Romans. But the law was given to show us our sin and to make us... Despair of ever uh, saving ourself through our goodness, ever being worthy enough that God would accept us. The law was given to make us totally despise ourself. We had turned from self-salvation and received salvation by grace as a gift. Paul makes that point even as we continue in this same chapter. But he's already abundantly made that point in other places. See, that was the purpose of the law. The law wasn't given to produce justification. The just live by faith, not by law. You can't find that in Scripture. The law wasn't given so that if you would keep it, you could be in right standing with God. The law was given to show you you hadn't got a chance of ever saving yourself. Give it up, hang it up, quit, ask for mercy. That was the purpose of the law. And so Paul here made radical statements. The law isn't a faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. In other words, this is just talking about that the person who is going to try and do the law, he's going to try and earn his relationship with God, he's going to be consumed with doing. It's going to be constantly effort, work, toil. It's going to produce travail. It's going to produce discouragement, despair. It's not going to release peace in your life. In contrast, the person who just receives salvation as a gift, he receives what's already done. Instead of having to do, it's a done deal. <laughs> There's a difference between you got to do this and it's done. There is a huge difference between the two. We're human beings, not human doings. Amen? We should just rest in what God has already done for us. Powerful truths. In verse 13... He says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And again, this is going back to Deuteronomy chapter 27, where it put the curse on you if you didn't continue in all things that were written in the law. And of course, none of us ever did that. So every single person that has ever breathed except Jesus... uh, was under the curse of the law because they have fallen short of its standards. So we were all under a curse. And how do you get out from this? Do you work your way out from it? Do you try and be good enough? No, that cannot break the curse. One that could break the curse in your life, and he did that through making Jesus a curse for you. And so Paul here in the 13th verse quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 23, and that passage of Scripture says, that uh, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So by Jesus hanging on a cross, which was made of wood, it's specifically, he became a curse for us. God placed our curse, the punishment for us failing to be everything that the law said that we should be. Our sin, our curse, our judgment, our punishment came upon Jesus, and he broke the curse off of us. That's the only way it can ever be broken. You can't be good enough to ever earn anything from God. You can't deserve the things of God. It has to come as a gift. And in verse 14, why was it that Jesus did this? It says that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith in Him. The reason that Jesus became sin for us and bore our curse and punishment was because we couldn't bear it. The only way we could have ever satisfied the demands of God for our sins was to literally go to hell and stay there for all eternity and God didn't want us to do that so what's the only other alternative it's for Jesus to bear our sins and become a curse for us and even though Jesus didn't stay in hell for all eternity one second of the sinless pure Son of God bearing our punishment bore more weight than if we would have borne our punishment throughout all eternity. He satisfied all of the demands of justice and therefore was able to bring us the blessing of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham came to Abraham how? By faith. How does it come to us? By faith. And any failure that we've ever had to live up to the covenant of the law, that curse that came with that has been placed upon God through Jesus so that we don't have to bear it. Boy, I tell you this is a powerful truth. That doesn't mean that the standards of the Old Testament law are totally useless to us, that we ought to just throw away the Old Testament. Because, for one thing, there is tremendous amounts of the uh, Scripture prior to the book of Matthew that is called Old Covenant, but it's not really Old Covenant. Like, for instance, the teaching about Abraham, that's all faith. It's justification by faith. David related to God on the basis of faith, and that's made very clear in the 51st chapter of Psalms. And you can see a tremendous amount of faith. Not everything that's in the Old Testament is Old Testament law. But even the things that are Old Testament law, we can still benefit by looking at it. It doesn't mean that God didn't have a perfect standard. It doesn't mean that now that because Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law that we should go out and murder and plunder and kill No, because God's standards are still the same. It's just that now the curse, the punishment are broken off for us failing to meet those standards. A person who is truly born again can rejoice in the fact that even though I've failed and continue to fail, that my curse has been placed upon Jesus, I am not under the wrath, the punishment, and the rejection of God. We can rejoice in that, but a person who is truly born again will not want to go out and violate God the standards of God. They're anxious to know, God, what is it that you want me to do? How is it that you want me to live? And so we can turn over to things like Exodus chapter 20 and read that thou shalt not kill. And we can see the wisdom behind that. We can read that you shall not bear false witness. You don't covet things. And we still profit from it. But if you ever fail in those areas, don't come under the curse and under the judgment. Christ redeemed us from that. Praise God. I've already mentioned those things many, many times. I just had not got time to go into all of the detail, but these are powerful things that are being said right here. You can't be cursed and blessed at the same time. They are mutually exclusive. If you are living under the curse, if you are living with a law works mentality, feeling that you have to be good enough for God to use you, if you are trying to relate to God on the basis of your effort, then you're under a curse. And if you're living under that curse, you will not walk in the blessing of God. On the other hand, if you are living under the blessing of God and receiving it by grace and understanding that it's a gift, then you can't be cursed. And that's made very clear over in Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, where Balaam tried to curse the children of Israel and God had blessed him, and Balaam says, I can't reverse it. The biggest soothsayer of his day couldn't change the blessing of God. Once you're blessed, you can't be cursed. If you're cursed, you can't be blessed except that you receive the atonement that Jesus has made for you. He redeemed you from the curse of the law. The only way to get out from under that curse is through coming into faith in Jesus, not performance. And once you do that, you're blessed. And praise God, if you're blessed then you are blessed forever. i got a three-tape series on blessings and miracles. If you hadn't heard that, I really encourage you to get it. That is a powerful, powerful truth. In verse 15, he says, Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. What he's talking about here is he's just saying that he's going to use a human illustration. He says, I'm going to talk like I'm talking to a physical man. This isn't necessarily spiritual. I'm using a, a carnal example to illustrate spiritual truth. And so he starts using Abraham, the covenant that was made with Abraham. Actually, he will continue this all the way through the fourth chapter of the book of Galatians. And he uses this to illustrate the points that he had just made about how that we are justified by faith without the law. And so he goes back and he uses uh, the covenant that God made with Abraham and he says here in this 15th verse, he says, though it be but a man's covenant, in other words, if this wasn't a covenant that came from God, and of course, God's holiness and faithfulness is infinitely higher than man's faithfulness, so we could expect God to keep his word, but even if you were just looking at a man's covenant, once it's ratified, once it's been witnessed to, once it's set in its seal, I mean, that thing is binding. It not only binds the person who's the recipient of the covenant, but it binds the person who's making the covenant. And he says, even in human terms, if it was just a man's covenant, if it's confirmed, no man disannulleth or addeth to it. In other words, you can't just say, time's out, king's ex, I don't want to live by this anymore. It's binding is the point that he's making. And, of course, God is the one that made this covenant with man, and God always binds himself by his word. Psalms chapter 89, verse 34 says, My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone forth out of my lips. God keeps his word. God is faithful. But he says, he's making an illustration and saying, even if it was a human covenant, once it's been uh, officially you know, put into effect, all of the conditions have been met, it's ratified, it's official. He says, you just can't break it. You can't disannul it. You can't get out of it. And the point that he's making here is, in verse 16, he says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He said, Not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, unto thy seed, which is Christ. He's saying that the covenant that God made with Abraham was made 430 years before the law came into effect. You can see that in the 17th verse. And this I say that the covenant which was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was four hundred and thirty years after, cannot disannul, or that means make void, that it should make the promise of none effect. <clears throat> so the point that he's making is Genesis fifteen, six, where God counted Abraham's faith unto him for righteousness. That covenant was in effect four hundred and thirty years. You can see this in Numbers chapter twelve, I believe it's verse forty where it says that the day the children of Israel came out of the land of Egypt was 430 years to the day after this covenant of Genesis 15:6, And then it was after that that God brought the law through Moses. So he's saying that this Old Testament law that Moses communicated in Exodus chapter 20 was over 430 years after the time that God gave the covenant of promise to Abraham by faith. And so it would be just like a covenant here on the earth. You know, you might put an addition to a covenant or you might have some other agreement beyond it, but that doesn't void the first covenant. It doesn't make it of none effect. That first covenant, by the fact that it was first, has priority. It has precedent. It is the superior covenant. And so that's the point that he's making. The covenant by faith and promise was made to Abraham 430 years before the Old Testament law went into effect, and therefore it was the superior law. And as he'll go on and explain, right down here in this same chapter, it says that the Old Testament law was added. Again, that's implying, see, that there was something prior to that, and it was only until, which means that it was temporary. It came later, and it has a an ending before this covenant of promise. So he's making all of these comparisons to show that the covenant of faith is superior to the covenant of law. And boy, I tell you, that upset the religious people of Paul's day. It still upsets religious people today to say that just belief in God is superior to working and trying to be holy and earning things from God. But that is the point that's being made here in Galatians chapter 3. Let's go back in verse 16. It says, Now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made. He said not, and to seeds, plural, as of many, but as of one into thy seed, singular, which is Christ. Boy, this is a powerful truth. You know, this is something that if Paul hadn't have interpreted this under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, most of us would have missed this. I mean, this is a tremendous revelation that came from God. He is making an... Actually, this entire book of Galatians is kind of built around this point right here. And he is building a defense on, on... the the word being singular instead of plural. I tell you people who come against the word of God, the Bible, and say well, it's not a totally accurate representation. You can't trust things. I mean, there's so many misspellings, There's, there's mistranslations you can't trust the word of God it's just a vague representation sure it contains the word, but it takes a tremendous amount of interpretation all of this knowledge, Greek and Hebrew to be able to really understand it Those kind of people would not have fared well with Paul. Paul was making an argument here based on just one letter of a word. And some people say, well, he had the original documents. No, he didn't. Paul was not quoting from the original Hebrew text. The scriptures that Paul quoted from, that Peter quoted from, that Jesus quoted from, was what we call the Greek Septuagint. It was a Greek translation of Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. Paul was quoting from a translation. He was not quoting from the original language. And he was basing an argument upon just one letter, whether a word was singular or plural, which some people think that the word cannot be trusted to that degree of uh, authenticity. And yet Paul was basing his argument on an interpretation or a translation of Scripture from one language into another. And he was still maintaining that this was the accurate word of God. Of course, Jesus quoted the Greek Septuagint. He says, as saith the word of God, as it is written. He quoted it as scripture, and it wasn't scripture exactly. It was a translation of it. Boy, the applications of that are really powerful for us. I could spend a lot of time on that, but I just wanted to bring that out, that here he is making a huge point based on a minute detail of a translation. Well, that's a tremendous point right there. And so the whole point that he's getting at is that he said that the promise was made to his seed, singular, not plural. And then he brings out that what this is saying is that God promised justification by faith to Abraham and his seed, which is Christ. Again, this has been missed by so many people. The Jewish nation thinks that their genealogy makes them the child of God, the children of God. The scripture here is saying, no, it's not your physical genealogy. It's whether you've got the same faith as Abraham. People who have the same faith as Abraham, they are the children of God. That's what it said in verse 7 and verse 9. It says, those which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. Faith in Christ makes me more united with Abraham than a physical Jew. Even though I'm a Gentile, it is not my nationality. uh, Judaism is not my religion. The Jewish nation is not my nationality. And yet I am more Jew because of my faith in Christ than a person who is a physical descendant of of, uh, Abraham and rejects faith in Christ. And boy, I know that that's going to set some people off. There are people that be upset with that, but that's what Paul is saying right here. This is the whole point that he's making. If a person is upset with me saying that, well, then you'd be upset with Paul if you really understood what's being said here in Galatians chapter 3. And I can guarantee you this mightily upset the religious people of Paul's day. That's the reason that he was put in prison and they tried to kill him and took oaths saying that they wouldn't eat, they wouldn't do anything until they had killed him because they were violent Because of statements just like this. Paul is saying that the promise wasn't made to Abraham and his physical descendants. It was made to Abraham and his spiritual descendant, Christ. And anybody who puts faith in Christ then is an heir of that promise and is actually more a part of the covenant than the physical descendants are. That's the point that he's making. Boy, this is a tremendous truth. Tremendous truth. In verse 17, he says, This I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Here's a way that the Living Bible paraphrases this verse. It says, here's what I'm trying to say. God promised to save through faith, and God wrote Uh, this promise down and signed it, could not be canceled or changed 430 years later when God gave the Ten Commandments. If obeying those laws could save us, then it is obvious that this would be a different way of gaining God's favor than Abraham's way, for he simply accepted God's promise. Well, that's a pretty good paraphrase. That's, That's basically the point that he's making right here, and it's a tremendous point. How does a person get around this? A person who says, but I believe you've got to be holy, and you got to keep all of these precepts of the law, and if you don't do all of these things, God won't accept you. Well, then how do you rationalize Abraham? Abraham didn't keep those precepts of the law. As a matter of fact, I brought this out when I was in the book of Romans, but Abraham broke the, prom- the commandments of Leviticus chapter 18, where it says that a man cannot marry a half-sister. And if a person does marry a half-sister, it's an abomination that is punishable by death. That person has to be cut off from their people. Well, Abraham married a half-sister. He was living in something that later, under the law, was called an abomination. He was not holy in that respect. How could he be justified with God? It's by faith. Abraham lied about his half-sister, Sarah, being his wife, and was willing to let another man commit adultery with with her. And he was not willing to let this happen just once. He did it twice. I mean, that's wrong. Abraham did some things that were wrong. I'm not trying to criticize the guy. I'm just saying that Abraham wasn't perfect. Abraham didn't inherit the promises of God and get God's favor because of his great holiness. He did it because he was a man of faith. And he had faith even though there were weaknesses and frailties in his life. And I know that there's some people that can't handle that. But that's what the gospel is. And this is the reason that Paul is bringing these things out. He's saying, can't you see this? How are you going to deal with Abraham? I mean, the Jews trusted that Abraham was the foundation of their whole faith and nation. Abraham was the great patriarch. Nobody was greater than Abraham. And here he is saying, well, then you aren't following the example of the founder of your nation. You aren't following the example of the founder of your faith you aren't following his example at all because Abraham was justified by faith 430 years before there was a law to follow. You know, it was inconsistent. It was illogical. It is not accurate. It is not a a true interpretation of Scripture. And Paul was just making this point so clear that, again, people had to just go with their traditions and their things that had been taught them or if they went with Scripture... They had to renounce those traditions and humble themselves and receive relationship with God through faith. In verse 18, it says, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more of promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. The law came 430 years after the covenant of promise with Abraham. So which one had the greater authority? Well, the one that came first. The covenant of promise was superior. And then in the next few verses, he begins to get into the fact that the old testament law came later 430 years later and it was added that means that it was an addition it was after the fact and it was only temporary all of these statements that were so contrary to putting faith in the law as our way of relating to god then the logical question that would arise is brought up here in the 19th verse he says wherefore then serveth the law And this would be a logical statement. Some people think, well, boy, Paul, you're against the law. You're saying that the law is not a faith. And all of these things that you've said, well, then why did God even give the law? And Paul makes some of the clearest presentations of anywhere in Scripture that I'm aware of about what the real purpose of the law was right here in Galatians chapter 3. He says, it was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So he uses two words here in this 19th verse. The word added and till, I believe, are very significant. First of all, when he says that it was added, this is in reference to the fact that the covenant of grace or promise that God had made with Abraham in Genesis 15:6 had already been in effect for 430 years before the law came. So the law was an add-on. It was an addition, and an addition never has the same effect, the same power as the original document. And so uh, that's quite a statement right there. And then he also says that it was added until the seed should come. And, of course, in verse 16, we see that that seed was Christ. So basically, the law came 430 years after the covenant of promise, and it was only temporary until Christ should come. Now that's a radical statement that most legalistic people, people who preach that you have to live holy and it's your performance and if you aren't worthy, God won't move in your life, answer your prayers, etc. People who preach that, it's a totally radical concept to them that the law is not still uh, in effect today. Function of the law, but it is certainly not for the purpose of justification, Uh the scripture says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, it says, We know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. In other words, there is a right and a wrong use of the law. Verse 9 says, Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says that when we get born again, we become righteous. Ephesians 4, 24, many scriptures make that point. So uh, the law is, isn't made for the born-again Christian. For the lost person, for a person who is outside of the covenant of God, there is a purpose of the law. And that purpose is to show them their sin, to make them despair of self-salvation, and to make them wait on uh, salvation to come from God. But the law does not have a purpose for the person who is in Christ. We now are administered holiness and a drive towards holiness and all of these things come from within because we now have a new nature. And I dealt with that over in Romans chapter 6. So anyway, Paul here is saying that the law was only temporary until Jesus could come, the the one to whom the promises were made, and he was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. And of course, this is talking about Moses. The word mediator literally means to be in the middle or midst. It is one who mediates between two parties with a view to producing peace. That's from W.E. Vines. And so a mediator here is just talking about Moses. Moses was this mediator, the go-between, the one who was in the middle between God and the entire Jewish race when the law was given. So Moses was that mediator. In the New Testament, Jesus is the mediator between God and man. It says that in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5 that there is only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. So the New Testament mediator, Jesus, was a go-between between God and man. But there are some big differences between the mediation that Moses gave under the Old Testament law and the mediation that Jesus gives Under the New Testament, the 20th verse, see, brings part of this out. In verse 20, it says, Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Now that sounds kind of confusing here. For a long time, I thought, what does this mean? Well, the word mediator, once again, it implies a person who is mediating between two parties who are in conflict with each other. In other words, if I had an argument with you, then I couldn't be a mediator between us. Because, see, a mediator is is a third party, is the terminology that we would use today. There has to be a third par- party involved. You couldn't mediate between me and you. I could not be the mediator between you and me because I would tend to represent only my own view, or I would certainly be prejudiced towards my own view. And so you would never consider one of the parties who is in dispute... To be the mediator in a situation, you always bring in a third party person. And so that's the way the mediator is. See, Moses was a mediator, and he was, even though he was human, he was standing in the gap between God and man. He wasn't the typical human. And so he was a mediator, but it was tainted in that respect. How could he accurate, accurately represent God in this mediation? Because he didn't really know God's side. He, at his very best, was still human and fraught with all kind of uh, inadequacies. But see, when Jesus came, there was a big difference between Jesus and Moses because Jesus was uniquely qualified to mediate between God and man because Jesus was God, but he was also man. Therefore, by experience, he had a real insight on God's perfect holy nature. Plus, he had an insight on man's frailty and all of the problems and temptations. Scripture says in the book of Hebrews that he suffered all temptations. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus was really different than Moses in the sense that he was uniquely qualified to represent both parties in a way that no mediator ever has been. But, Jesus also, some people could say, well, again, Jesus and God were one. How could he accurately do it? It was because of his unique nature in the sense that he was, he was one with God, but he was also one with man. Jesus was just a totally unique mediator. And that's what this 20th verse is referring to. It says, now, a mediator is not a mediator of one. In other words, he's saying, how can you be a mediator if uh, you're one of the disputing parties? But God is one. In other words, he's bringing out the point that Jesus was God, and yet he was the mediator between God and man, because he was unique in the sense that he was God and he was man at the same time. Jesus also did something that no other mediator could do. Most mediators, all they can do is actually make suggestions. Sometimes they have binding arbitration, but the mediator really doesn't have the power to... uh, do anything else. It's up to somebody else to enforce it. But see, Jesus not only came, presented the solution, but then he became the solution. The real dispute between God and man was the sin. And Jesus took sin in his own body, suffered for us, paid the debt completely, and then he didn't only do that. That would have been wonderful. But then Jesus actually rose from the dead and enforced his own provision his own payment that was made to settle this dispute he rose from the dead to stand there and anybody who ever wants to bring up any of the past sins that we've ever committed jesus is now alive from the dead to stand there and intercede for us praise god because of this see jesus is the surety of a better covenant a better relationship with god he mediated between us and god and god he actually became our sacrifice that produced the atonement and now he ever lives to enforce the mediation that he arbitrated for us praise god well, i'll tell you that is a powerful statement so when it says that now a mediator is not a mediator of one but god is one that's talking about that this is not the typical mediation uh... because jesus was god but he was also man it's just pointing out that this was really a miraculous thing that God used his own son to be the mediator between God and man. In verse 21, Paul returns back to that question he began in verse 19. He's once again saying, well, then what is the purpose of the law? Verse 21, he says, is the law then against the promises of God? His answer is God forbid. It's one of Paul's favorite terms, and it's an emphatic no. It means no, God forbid, may it never be. And so Paul is not against the law. He's just against using the law for something that God never intended it to be for. The law was not given for the purpose of justification. I've already ministered a lot on this. I've got some great footnotes written on this subject. Let me just real quickly give some of these to you if you want to go back and study this. But notes 3 and 4 and Romans 3.19, note 14 and Romans 3.31, also note 5 at Romans 7:11, and there really are a lot of others. But the purpose of the law was to magnify sin, to amplify sin, to make the drive, the desire for sin come alive on the inside of us for the purpose of removing this deception from us that we could ever save ourselves. And so the law was not given to break the dominion of sin, but actually to strengthen sin in your life. Sin had already deceived us. It had already defeated us. And the sad thing was we weren't even sharp enough to know it. And so God had to do something to show us what pitiful shape we were in so that we would come in for treatment, so that we would come get help. People were thinking that they were okay and that they were really not so bad. And so God had to show us how bad our disease was, that it was terminal, that it was killing us. And so he presented this terrible picture through the law. The law showed us how incapable of ever being right with God we were. So if you use the law for the purpose that it was intended for, well, then the law is great. But Paul is preaching against the law, not against the law itself, but against the misuse of the law, trying to use it for the purpose of justification. He says in this 21st verse, he says, If there had been a law given which could have given life, very righteousness should have been by the law. In other words, the law wasn't given to produce life. It was actually given to amplify and increase the death that sin was already producing on the inside of us. The reason the law could not bring life was because, like it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, it was because of the weakness of our flesh. We couldn't keep the law. The law was good. If we would have been good, then we could have kept the law and everything would have been fine. But the problem is that we were the ones who fell short Therefore the law was incapable of ever producing life in us. In verse 22 he says, "But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. So God, through giving the law what He did, he just amplified sin, made everybody in the same category. Even if you're one of the goody goodies, you aren't any better <coughs> excuse me, you aren't any better off. And then the person who has been in total rebellion towards God. You've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Another way of saying this is that all of the ground is level at the foot of the cross. When you come to Jesus for salvation, there's nobody that says, Well, Jesus, I'm pretty good. I only need a little bit of salvation. And another person says, Oh, I need a lot of salvation. No, if you miss heaven by an inch, you miss it by a mile. You have to have a Savior. And if you have a Savior, then he atones for all of your sins. It doesn't matter how many you had or how few you had. You are the same as everyone else. So God made everybody in the same category so that everybody could receive the same redemption. There aren't different ways to God. Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. Jesus is the only way to the Father. All of that ground is level at the foot of the cross. Nobody's higher than another. In verse 23, it says, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Now, when it says before faith came, well, faith has always been here. And faith has always been the way of receiving from God. Abraham was justified by faith. He's already made that point quite a few times here in this chapter. What he's talking about when he says before faith came, he's talking about before this faith in Jesus as our Savior came, before we had it revealed to us about the Messiah, about the Savior, before that knowledge came, then the law had a function, and it was to shut us up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. This word shut up here is talking about like a jailer (laughs) in prison's. A person and keeps them under their guilt and condemnation. That's what that word literally is referring to, a jailer imprisoning somebody. And this is the way that the law was. The law imprisoned us under guilt and condemnation, a a terrible loathing of ourselves. That was the purpose of the law, was to make us hate ourselves and recognize that we couldn't save ourselves. And the only way to ever get delivered from that type of guilt and condemnation is to have Jesus release us from the harsh imprisonment of guilt and condemnation. Praise God. That was what the law was. The law, it goes on to say it was a schoolmaster. But see, the the law was a harsh schoolmaster. It was a jailer. It was somebody who's told us the right things, but with no mercy, no pity, it was ruthless. And man, it ministered condemnation and guilt. You know, this shut up also is, if you could just picture right now, a person who was trying to get to God. And they realize that their life was a mess. And so what they do, they say, well, I'm going to turn around. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm not going to head in this destructive path anymore. I'm going to start being holy and good. And so they turn around and go in the opposite direction. And here's the law, just like a huge wall that is so tall you could never scale it. You could never get over it. And here it is saying uh, a standard of holiness that is so incapable of us ever living to that you can't ever scale it. So we say, well, that's I can't get to God that way so then we turn a different direction and here's the law again just like a wall in front of us with such a holy standard of perfection we can't live up to that either so here we are turning a total 360 degree circle and everywhere we turn the law is just like a wall that has shut us in there is no way to go except up we just have to look up and say God if this is what your standard of holiness is have mercy on me a sinner That was the purpose of the law, to shut us up so that the only way we could look was up. That was the purpose of the law. It was not given to provide you a way to God, but rather to block any other avenue of self-salvation, any deception that you could ever get saved any other way except through God. It was given to magnify sin and make it so big that you could see you could never obtain, you could never climb over these barriers. You were incapable of saving yourself. Boy, that is powerful. To me, that really ministers to me. That was the purpose of the Old Testament law. It says in verse 24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. The word schoolmaster here in the Greek, it literally is talking about a servant who was in charge of conducting a child to and from school, and they were also in charge of the life and the morals of, of the child until they reached maturity. And so what he's talking about is that the law was for us before we got born again, and this connection will be made real clear in the fourth chapter, before we were born again, we were like children that needed somebody to just control our lives because we were incapable of controlling them ourselves. So the Old Testament law was like that. You know, I haven't got time to go into depth. I've already mentioned this before, but we do this with children before they get to where they understand we actually use the rod on them which is really a severe harsh way to deal with things and yet it's what the scripture teaches you you use a rod on a child and it's not wrong but it would be wrong to use that on an adult see it's only a temporary way of dealing with them until they get to where they can understand on their own when you start you know crossing a street i used to live on a busy street in Arlington Texas that's where i grew up And my mother, I mean, drilled this into me. Don't you ever cross that street without looking both ways. And if I ever attempted to cross that street without looking both ways, boy, I got the beating of my life. I got spanked over it a number of times. So when I was a child, my whole motivation for looking both ways was so that I wouldn't get a spanking. But really, that wasn't the point. The real reason for looking both ways is so you won't get run over. Now I'm grown. And my mother no longer is going to spank me if I cross the street Without looking both ways. But does that mean that I no longer do it because there's no punishment? No, the punishment has been removed, but I still look both ways because it'll save my life. It's wise. It's the smart thing to do. The real reason that that discipline was administered in the first place was just to help me until I got to the time to where I could understand the real reason for living right. I was motivated out of fear. Now I'm motivated out of a sense of wisdom and knowledge of what's right. Well, see, it was the same thing. Before we became born again, we couldn't perceive the things of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says a natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit. We were spiritually retarded, spiritually dull before we're born again. So how do you deal with a person like that? Well, you still got to keep them from doing the wrong thing so that they can grow up and get to where they can reason. How do you ever get to live that long when you're just brain dead spiritually? You have no spiritual wisdom and knowledge. Well, the Old Testament law was there to just punish you. And so we did things out of a fear of punishment, a fear of being caught. Many of us, the Old Testament law, see, told us about the wrath of God. If you do this, the judgment of God is going to come upon you. And many of us, that's the way that we've related to God. But that is not the real nature of God. That was just this schoolmaster. It was the law that was a temporary thing. Now that we're born again, we don't have to obey the law. The schoolmaster has no more dominion over us. We're free from his control, from his influence. We can now do what we want to do. But does that mean that we go out and live lawless because we no longer have the law as our schoolmaster? No, that's not what that means. That means that you probably will make mistakes, but when you do, you shouldn't come under fear of judgment. The schoolmaster's gone. The punishment's gone. If you cross a street without looking both ways, and if you live through it, well, don't get fearful about, oh, please don't tell my mother or I'll get in trouble. But at the same time, don't cross the street without looking both ways. It's for your own good. It's for your own wisdom. See, now we do not... Fear the fact that God's going to reject me if I go live in sin. I don't want to live in sin because, number one, it's not my nature. And number two, it's not smart. It gives Satan the inroad into my life. Why do I want to give Satan the right to come bring depression and discouragement and fear and anger and all these other things? That's just stupid. Sin is not smart. It's emotional. It's actually stupid if you look at it. And so these are the points that Paul is making here. It's a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. And then in verse 25, he says, but after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Boy, this is such a clear statement. I don't know how anybody could miss this. This scripture is talking about that the law is our schoolmaster. Once we come to Christ, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Now, how anybody can believe that this is the word and then turn around and say, well, I believe that you still got to be holy. And if you don't live holy, God won't answer your prayers. God won't move in your life then you're just violating everything that Paul is saying right here. I tell you, these scriptures here in Galatians chapter 3 are scriptures that you need to get in your heart. They need to become a vital part of your life because I tell you, this will just blow 90% of religion out of the tub today. This is contrary to the way that most people live. And it's because the way we live is wrong, not the scripture. These scriptures are powerful. This needs to become something that really becomes a part of you. In verse 26, it says, "...for you are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus." Now, remember here, he's speaking to Gentiles, people that the Jews would have rebuked and rejected because they weren't physically the descendants of Christ, and yet he's already made this point that through Jesus Christ, or excuse me, they weren't physically the descendants of Abraham, But he's made this point that through Christ, they really are the true children of Abraham. When we get put faith in Christ, then you become a true Jew, a true child of God. In verse 27, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. This isn't talking about just water baptism. I've already made this point in Romans chapter 6, verses 2 and 3 and 4. And also in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, there are many baptisms. And this is talking about the baptism into the body of Christ. This is basically just saying when you get born again, when you become in Christ, then you have put on Christ. You are now a part of Christ. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Boy, the applications of this are many. We could make a lot of applications. I won't take time to do that, but it's just basically saying you lose your personal identity, even to the point of your sex, your nationality, your slavery, or whether you're free. None of those things matter. It's only who you are in Christ that amounts to anything. And you are now a part of Jesus. You are a part of the covenant of promise. You need to relate to God on the basis of grace, not works. In verse 29, and he says, And if you be Christ, that's an apostrophe S. If you be Christ, possess, if you you belong to Christ, then are you Abraham's seed, singular, and heirs according to the promise. Verse 16 made a big point of talking about that the promises were made to Abraham's seed, singular, not plural. In the same context, the same man writing is saying that if you belong to Christ, if you've been born again, now you are Abraham's seed. In other words, he says, now you are Christ. Not talking about you in your flesh, not talking about you in your soul, not talking about you through any virtue or anything of your own, but in your born-again spirit, you have now become identified, united with Jesus. As it goes on to say in chapter 4, that he has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you literally have the Spirit of Christ in you. Romans chapter 8, verse 6 says, If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. Jesus has literally come into you. And it's not Jesus just there, but you have been merged with him. 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. And that Greek word hes, H-E-I-S, that was translated one, it means a singular one to the exclusion of another. You have become merged with Jesus. His spirit and your spirit are merged so that whatever is true of Jesus is also true of you in your spirit you are identical to Him. That's the reason the Scripture says that you can arm yourselves with this same mind. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. That's the reason that we can reckon ourselves to be dead unto sin the same way that Jesus is dead unto sin. Romans chapter 6. Boy, this identification with Christ only comes through understanding grace and faith. It cannot be obtained through any effort, through works, through any degree of holiness and performance. It has to be given unto us as a gift. This third chapter of Galatians is just a powerful book. I tell you, we covered a lot of territory. Uh, I could teach on the things that I've covered in this one-and-a-half-hour tape. I could have literally taught on it for twice that long or three or four times that long. Uh, It's just imperative that you go back through this, meditate on these scriptures, listen to this tape over, read the scriptures, until every word, every uh, verse, every paragraph of this third chapter of Galatians becomes understandable to you. When it gets to where it's something that you embrace, that you understand, and that it's in your heart, I promise you it will set you free from the guilt and the condemnation, the performance trap the performance mentality. This is a powerful, powerful chapter, and I encourage you to go back through it, to review it, and get the maximum benefit from this. We'll continue on our next tape, uh, starting in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 1.